Micah Miller trying to spring a pass ahead. Nobody in front of Jack Paling. Moves on with a blast and scores! Jack Paling We aren't giving up on chances, and we just got to bottom line execute. Waits, waits, passes in front. Great save, Pelosi, as she robs a gopher in front of her. And that was number eight, Kippen Keller, on the great A opportunity. For me as a coach, that's the kind of D you're always looking for because uh, they don't grow on trees for sure, and, and he's done a really good job being a captain of a really young team this year. It's a really cool thing to see for them to uh, really appreciate what I've done on and off the ice. To the far half wall, Jack Paling trying to play it into the corner. Now Paling turns, squares his body to the slot, sends it up high toward Jack. Shaw makes his play through and they score! Right along the blue line, Nick Paling was in front of the net, and St. Welcome back to the Den Husky Morning House podcast, fans. It is episode number 44 here on this Sunday morning. I'm Nick Maxson alongside Noah Grant. Uh, Noah, we need to start off with a couple of housekeeping procedures here for you, but there was one that maybe we missed this uh, this week, but you know what? Things happen. It is uh, it is January. It's uh, you know almost the spring semester here as we are actually on the eve of spring semester, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be you know close to school if we didn't have some type of a, a technical difficulty, would it be? Yeah, definitely not. Um, So as people who are watching the YouTube uh, stream might have noticed by now, my background is a little bit different because I moved. Uh, I got into my apartment on Friday uh, down in Minot and I'm all set and ready for school. Um, Actually, if you have been watching our previews and recaps of the men's hockey season in Duluth, that uh, that photo of the background that I normally have at my house, it's actually a computer generated background. It's actually a green screen behind me, as you can probably identify now because of the different background today for episode number 44. But what Nick is alluding to is because of all that moving on Friday, that is usually the day that I program the two-line fan trivia question into uh, our Twitter page so that it comes out the following Saturday at noon. Um, And I totally missed that (laughs) because of everything that was going on. So we will not have a trivia winner today, but probably maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe it's a maybe a blessing in disguise just because of all the other things that we do have going on. Um, Nick, we have some changes to the show uh, to kind of fill in as far as personnel are concerned, as well as we do have a pair of women's hockey players, former women's hockey players that will be joining us on Tuesday for our healthy scratch interview segment. Uh, And we have an upcoming guest that we're recording with this week. So Nick, do you want to kind of fill the listeners in on some changes as far as personnel in the coming weeks and then uh, guests that are to be upcoming in the following week as well? Uh, sure. Uh, I think if you haven't seen the the announcements yet on Twitter, uh, uh, Ben Holden, a uh, former CBS uh, play-by-play, uh, will be joining the show for at least the uh, the near future as he uh, searches for a new gig uh, inside the world of hockey. Uh, no question, uh, someone who should be calling games to me at the professional level and uh, uh, to me just an overall great guy he's incredibly passionate about the game of hockey and uh, he'll be joining us as our third co-host for these next few weeks and so uh, he'll be debuting with us this next week Um, he's spending some time away just uh, uh, gathering some heat down in the great state of Florida Mm -hmm. and uh, of course like the good friend that he is, didn't invite us to go with him. No, I'm totally kidding. So, uh, but a good guy. Um, but I think the bigger thing is we have a former SCSU alumni and current San Jose Sharks analyst, Brett Hedekin, tentatively scheduled for us to 
to be joined to record a segment this week. So we're really super excited to have him. Uh, super, obviously, a great guy, a great pro career, and then no question has had a really good broadcasting career so after he stopped playing. So uh, Brett Hedekin, again, tentatively scheduled to join us sometime this week for a recording. And then, uh, no, I don't think uh, I've missed anything as of yet. Um, um, I, I, I would just add this, uh, Nick, I guess I want to know how you're doing on this Sunday. And the reason I want to know how you're doing on this Sunday, you weren't going to get away with this one. Um, no. So for those who don't know, uh, Nick's usually a pretty consummate professional. I, I would put it that way. Um, normally when I tell him that we're going to record at seven, he's there at seven. Uh, Nick, would you like to fill the listeners in on how your Sunday morning is going and why it went the way it did, I guess? <laughs> Uh, let's just say that the alarm was missed. Uh, we were supposed to record at 11 o'clock uh, this morning. It is now past noon. And essentially what happened was I was taking up uh, an extra gig uh, through work and it required, uh, I guess, a six hour job. And uh, I didn't got, get home until about 3, 3.30 in the morning. And uh, when I set the alarm, let's just say the good old ears at mine either decided not to hear the alarm or maybe I just decided to roll over and play dead. I'm not quite sure what happened. You, you know, so. you know, I, I did, I contacted Nick's significant other this morning and I kind of asked her, I said, you know, I kind of thought once you hit the age of 30 that you just wake up before nine, like, isn't that like a rite of passage <laughs> to, you know, when you're, when you're changing ages, I don't know. That's, really, that's only if you're in bed by nine. So <laughs> that, that is true. That is true. Um, but really happy to uh, be with all of our listeners this morning. Don't forget uh, um, episodes as you're probably understanding by now coming out every Sunday now for the center ICU news and notes. And then uh, every Tuesday for the healthy scratch interview segment, for those who may have missed that announcement last week, with that being said, we also have a new twist coming up to center ICU news and notes this week. So let's jump right into it. Center Ice View News and Notes. Center Ice View provides you with the best coverage of St. Cloud State Huskies hockey from game notes, recaps, photos, and more. Go to centericeview.com. Center Ice View News and Notes in one of our new segments, the Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup, as we'll begin uh, a couple of different stories in this route. First of all, uh, Noah, all Canadian provinces have approved NHL games. Uh, the season is set to begin on Wednesday, the 13th of January, so a couple of days uh, for all teams but Dallas, who's had to wait almost another week to play because of eight positive COVID-19 tests. Uh, the early start date for them, according to the league, is set to begin on January 19th, although, again, that's tentative and that could be pushed back even later, depending on you know whether the team personnel or the players continue to test positive for the virus. One team that will be back in action, Nick, is the Minnesota Wild. The Minnesota Wild are set to begin play this week. Thursday, January 14th is when the Wild do start a road swing in the Honda West Division opening in Los Angeles and Anaheim. As the four divisions have sponsors, more than half of the NHL clubs have included sponsors on their helmets as well to make up for lost revenue in the COVID-related season. The Wild also named Jared Spurgeon the second captain in franchise history. At age 31, Spurgeon has been in the league for just over a decade, and his seven-year deal keeps him locked up through the 2026-27 season. The Minnesota Wild are missing another body this week in Marco Rossi, who is out indefinitely with an upper body injury as of today on Sunday. And Patrice Bergeron was the only other captain to be named for an NHL club this week in Boston after Zdeno Chara signed with the Washington Capitals. Uh, and speaking of the uh, National Hockey League, Noah, um, after taking a leave of absence, Corey Crawford uh, has retired from the NHL at the age of 36. Uh, longtime Chicago Blackhawk, uh, two Stanley Cups in 2013 and 2015, uh, obviously two-time All-Star, 
uh, effectively named the Crow, who had just signed a two-year deal with New Jersey, but will forfeit that money, obviously, when we're in the retirement process. Um, he will finish his career with 475 playing games uh, and certainly wish Corey Crawford nothing but the best. I know that he was in, anticipating playing for another possible Stanley Cup contender with the Islanders, but unfortunately, uh, due to some personal reasons, as he stated in his retirement post, that he will be uh, no longer playing in the National Hockey League. Yeah, an opponent of the Devils in the New York Islanders uh, would have been an opponent of Corey Crawford this year. And lone New York Islanders free agent and superstar Matthew Barzal was re-upped by the club this past week. His deal will run for three years and a $7 million average annual value. The contract structure is reported to be sort of a backloaded contract. The 16th overall pick in 2015 led the team with 60 points in 68 regular season games, having not missed a game in three full seasons on the island. Young phenom Oliver Bjorkstrand earned a five-year $27 million extension for Columbus, having led the Blue Jackets in goals with 21 last year, even while missing 21 games in the shortened season. Another young gun in John Marino hit a payday with a six-year $26.4 million extension in Pittsburgh, with the last year of his deal set to be be played out this season he tallied 26 points in 56 games on the blue line no relation to dan marino though so i think that's important to clarify that one uh in other signings michael delzato inked a one-year deal with columbus as did riley shahan with buffalo sammy vatnan signed with new jersey and the young centerman in dylan strome got a two-year deal from chicago and last but not least, former wild forward Luke Conan nabbed a two-year deal in Nashville. Conan was part of a trade from Minnesota to the Predators for 31-year-old center Nick Benino. And Travis Hamanick also signed with Calgary on a professional tryout offer. Uh, also, some other hockey news, Noah, that's important, especially in the junior ranks. Uh, the WHL approved a 24-game season. Uh, you start date yet to be announced yet, but uh, a change, uh, I guess it was supposed to start here the 8th, uh, but the league uh, includes four Western Canadian provinces and two in the U.S. states. So six teams in total uh, for the WHL. So again, a shortened season, but one that will begin sometime here in the next few weeks. Six provinces, not teams, six provinces that encompass all the teams in the WHL. Uh, finally, other quick hits around the world of hockey include the passing of former Oilers coach John Muckler, who died at the age of 86. Muckler was part of five Stanley Cup in Edmonton and also coached for the Minnesota North Stars during his time in the league. And he was also part of that Ottawa Senators Cup run in 2007. Lastly, Colin Wilson retired from the National Hockey League after 11 seasons. At age 31, he retires after an eight-year stint in Nashville and three years with the Colorado Avalanche, amassing just under 300 points in 632 career games. Nick, uh, really exciting to kind of hear the rumblings and things going on around the National Hockey League and the hockey world in general. I heard Henrik Lundqvist's heart surgery went about five hours and ended up going very well as well. So uh, really, uh, really excited to see what the upcoming season for uh, the finish of the NCHC and the WCHA for men's and women's hockey in St. Cloud, as well as the start of the National Hockey League. Lots of things to look forward to on this January 10th. Uh, moving over into our St. Cloud State Huskies here and women's hockey. Uh, women's hockey uh, facing one of the best teams in the nation in the Minnesota Golden Gophers with a home-and-home -home series, a three-game stint that will conclude today at 3 o'clock. Um, they did lose both uh, the first two games of the series uh, by a score of 2-1 to one and four to one that two to one game was a real nail biter nick uh 
you know, the Huskies led one nothing after two periods, but Minnesota, you knew they weren't going to go away. And then that four to one loss that uh, just came yesterday on Saturday, um, shots were 19 to three in the first period in favor of the Gophers with four goals in that game. So I think the Huskies rebounded really well in the latter half of the you know the last 40 minutes of the game, but they do move to two and six on the year. Uh, you know, the Gophers are going to be a good team. I mean, what did they kind of have to do today? And then, you know, what do you take away from this series as St. Cloud? We've talked about how they've gotten better. They're kind of in that mix now with Bemidji, with Mankato, uh, kind of that middle of the pack group there. Um, you know, what do you take away um, from the series playing one of the best teams in college hockey on the women's side? It shows that they're defending too much, if anything. Uh, Minnesota, again, you know they're a team that has, you know, the, probably some of the best talent in women's college hockey. Uh, you know that they're a team that can uh, be the aggressor, that can control the gameplay. And, and for St. Cloud, uh, first game, we saw that, you know, one nothing lead uh, going into the third period. And, you know, it's one of those where I don't think St. Cloud, as far as the women's team, has the luxury of sitting back and just defending. Um, it, unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, the talent that is coming at them is just way too good. And uh, unless they are able to control play in the offensive zone and really keep them uh, as far as defending their opponents are concerned uh, in their own defensive zone, I don't think it's a recipe for success as of yet for St. Cloud. Um, and again, Minnesota came out, they showed that they didn't really uh, like their performance in game one, maybe thought that, uh, you know, they should have been more on the aggressor in the first game that came out flying in the second game, as we saw then, as you mentioned, 19 shots to three are really putting St. Cloud in their heels. And unfortunately for St. Cloud to know well, they're a team that's really not built as of right now to come from behind either. So um, a tough lesson for the women team, uh, but it's a very clear direction of where this team still needs to go as far as stepping in the right direction is concerned, uh, taking the game plan and more of their game towards their opponent, not allowing just to sit back and allow the other team to just come continue to uh, pepper shots right at them as well. Yeah. And I think for this women's group too, I know we've really kind of hyped them up, you know, cause there's a lot of things that are, you know, exciting to look forward to for this group, especially compared to last year's group. There's a lot of growth, uh, a lot of continued maturity that is starting to develop among these younger players on this roster. But um, I, I think Saturday is a really, really strong example of when you combine a team that is probably better than St. Cloud on paper with an effort level, that's just not going to cut it for this women's group. And, and I, you know, like I said, I know that we, you know, talk really positively about this women's hockey group, but Saturday's game was not a game to really be all that positive about. I mean, you can't give up four goals in the first period against any team, but especially a group like Minnesota, it's darn near impossible to claw your way back against a group of that caliber. So I think uh, if you're the women's hockey team, again, we preached it a lot last year. I think we need to see more of it. Uh, you know, the two examples that we've seen are probably that Duluth series. And then this Minnesota series where consistency will really come back to bite you. You know, you can't, you know, sure. Maybe if Minnesota, if you, as you kind of alluded to, maybe had a, you know, not their best start in the first game, you know, they sneak out with a two to one win. the Huskies are kind of grabbing some confidence thinking, okay, we can hang with this hockey team. You can't take your foot off the gas. You can't say, Oh, well, look at the result was a one goal game. You know, we're, we're a better team this year. So that means that we can hang with the Gophers. No, it, you know, anybody can win on any given night in the WCHA and St. Cloud, like you mentioned, is a group that is still just a little bit too top heavy and they're going to have to find a way you know, against these teams like Minnesota to, you know, understand that it's going to take a full 60 minutes throughout the entire lineup. You can't have an off night against a team like Minnesota. Unfortunately, they paid for it last night. We'll have to see how they do today. But, uh, you know, I, I really like the fact, though, that you did play them 
you know, tight in that first game, you know, and I, I really hope the result today is a closer game as well too, especially, you know, Herbrook's national hockey center, that bigger ice sheet as well. Um, you know, if you start hanging with these Minnesota teams, you know, hanging with Duluth a little bit, hopefully when you meet them next, hanging with Wisconsin, you know, that bodes well for this group. But right now, um, you know, a real, real contrast between Thursday night and Saturday night showing. Um, hopefully they can rebound uh, today. But moving on to uh, men's hockey and a group, uh, speaking of Duluth as well, uh, they didn't really need a rebound from anything because they have just kept the train rolling. This men's hockey team, you know, won four to three on the first night and kind of a last shot win sort of contest on Friday night on January 8th and then a one to nothing overtime um, I would, I wouldn't say barn burner. It was far from that, but a uh, very silky move by Nick Perfects for the game winner. Uh, making a uh, Roth of Duluth look absolutely silly <laughs> on that one-on-one move there. So the Huskies do improve to nine and four on the year first in the NCAC with 27 points. Uh, they have earned a point in all, but two games, if I'm not mistaken this year, Nick, do you know the two games that they didn't earn a point against? That would be Western Michigan. Yep. And that would also be, Give me a second. Uh, would have been Omaha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by scores yeah. of two to one and two to nothing. Otherwise, the Huskies' other two losses on the year have come against North Dakota and Duluth in the overtime session. Huskies improved to two and two in the overtime frame. Uh, statistically, we've seen that the longer the OT goes, the better the Huskies seem to do. Uh, only North Dakota has a better points percentage than St. Cloud State, who are just under 700 right now in their points percentage. So that's great. Uh, plus eight goal differential. Only Omaha and North Dakota. Have have a better goal differential that Omaha group geez what a stingy stingy hockey team uh plus 15 for both of those teams I, I think Omaha's still flying under the radar but before I kick it over to you Nick the last time St. Cloud State was tied 0-0 after regulation was against Mankato on what date Nick do you happen to know what year I guess is probably the better January 13th of what year it was in the 90s uh no a little bit a little bit more recent a little bit more recent Ooh, 2004. Close-ish. Neither team scored in the game, finished with a 0-0 tie. Bobby Getford was a net for the Huskies on January 13th of 2007 in a 0-0 tie. Of course, uh, Bobby Getford, of all people, would remember <laughs> a 0-0 goaltending stalemate, right, as pointed out to Centerized View. So thank you for that information from both of those parties. Uh, but the big news in goaltending for the Huskies, David Rennick set a franchise record with his 10th shutout in a St. Cloud State uniform. This Huskies team continuing to roll, as you had mentioned and alluded to, uh, I believe 33 points last year in 24 games. We're just approaching uh, 13 games played now, and they're at 27 points. So two more wins, and they'll tie that total from last year. Nick, what do you like from this Huskies group? Can we characterize this St. Cloud State group as a team that has a legitimate chance to win the NCHC this year? We talked about it in our season preview. We thought fourth or third place was a real applicable spot for the Huskies. Are they exceeding expectations right now, or is this something that we should come to expect from this Huskies group uh, through the rest of the season? Um, I think if you're going to characterize this the squad and you're going to you know, go back to where you thought they might be first of the season – are they exceeding expectations? I think they are. Um, but is it really surprising? Uh, maybe a little bit, but not by a much. I mean, again, this squad um, that's been put together, Brett Larson, the coaching staff, they do an unbelievable job. Um, the first, first time that uh, Vietti Mietnan hasn't scored in, in multiple games uh, since the pod. Um, he had a five-game goal streak that come in, and he's been a real spark for the reason why the Huskies are there. But one thing different about this team, Noah, is these close contests – 
these are, you know, when you talk about championship teams, you find a way to stay patient. You find a way to continue with your game plan and you don't panic. Um, and this team has not only come from behind on multiple occasions this year, but again, four, three against a really good team in Duluth and then one, nothing again, an overtime versus Duluth again last night. So uh, they're winning the close games, whether it's four, three, one, nothing um, they're eking it out. And again, we talked about it in our, our post game recap uh, yesterday um, was, you know, when, when it's a low scoring game. And like I said, you, you know, you, you can characterize the game in two ways. Is it a barn burner or is it one of those where, you know, everybody's really just trying to, you know, play defensive hockey, good structure, and, and just, they know the significance of the game. And, you know, to a player's perspective, especially if you're an offensive player, like I was and like you were, it's very easy to try to almost, take that structure that you're in, especially if you have the puck and want to do a little bit too much. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what the other opponents wanting to do. They want you to break up, not do what you need to do, make you make a mistake and then capitalize on that and come back the other way. Uh, this is a good discipline win by, by uh, St. Cloud is how I would characterize it as a team that, you know, there's not going to be room. You know what the game plan is going to be. You stick with it. You find your opportunity again, Nick Perbix on a forward Kobe Bender, as you mentioned with a nice uh, move. And then for Perbix there, again, he was almost one on three there for a moment. Uh, there was a couple of forwards changing behind him, but he recognized the situation. Uh, he took advantage of it and a beautiful, Beautiful backhand between mm-hmm. the legs move um, again, Kobe Roth, and then again on stakes call to get the overtime win. So uh, the emergence of Nick Perbix to me has been a really, really good sight. We saw a little bit of that last season, um, but I think his emergence again via Team Yetnin. Um, I love the balance in these lines. That fourth line with Cockrell, Kupka, um, and pardon me for <laughs> missing the other person uh, right now. Who am I missing? Hmm. Yeah, why please, can't I think of it? Why can't, why can't I think? I, Mike and, no, it's not Michael. Holden. No, it's not Michael Miller. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I can't think of it. But why, you know, why, why you know, am I doing this? Oh my you, gosh. you know, it, but it, it, this brings up a really good point, actually, Nick. Is you know, you mentioned Michael Miller. Talk about a guy like Nolan Walker. Talk about Will Hammer. You know, guys. You know, in there that lineup. You know, Kyler Kupka. Um, you know, even Thomas Rocco and you know Chase Brand when they're slotted uh, slotted up into the lineup. Guys that you know, Husky fans don't immediately think of or come to mind, but guys that have been so pivotal. I mean, we look at championship teams, right? That when you get into the playoffs, right? I think back to, uh, let's pick a, a playoff run. Let's pick the Pittsburgh Penguins when they went back to back. I think that's a really good group to pick on here. Sure. Is Sidney Crosby a world-class hockey player? Yep. Is Evgeny Malkin a world-class hockey player? Yep. But look at the scoring they got from guys, those depth guys that you don't even think about. Your Nick Beninos, who's now a Minnesota Wild member. You know, your Brian Russ, that was kind of his breakout performance jake gensel in that second year against nashville you know guys that have stepped up to the plate they're getting scoring by committee i think that's a big thing for the huskies i mean i believe if i'm not mistaken their leading score is still nick perbix or nick perbix is right up there so i mean you have a defenseman who is you know almost carrying the torch if you will so that tells me that you have such balance in terms of scoring opportunities for these forwards that's such a big deal uh for the huskies a couple things that i noted uh throughout the weekend just in general through fan rumblings number one um, let's say it again. I know you've said it twice already. Vieti Mietinen. I, I, it's wrong on the on the sheet. Um, Vieti has confirmed that to one of our colleagues. So that is where we're getting that information. So Vieti Mietinen, for those who are listening to the show and are wondering how to pronounce that name. Uh, the other thing that I, I think was kind of interesting to mention, um, you know, obviously CBS broadcast on Friday night, a play-by-play guy for the New Jersey Devils was doing the game. Um, you know, and, and I know people are frustrated with Ben Holden not doing the game because Ben does such a fantastic job. We love him. We're so excited to have him. Uh, 
<laughs> New Jersey Devils play that play guys really good. I, it, it, you know, like I think people are um, kind of giving them a hard time. I don't think people know how hard it is to cover one team, especially at the national hockey league level, when you're always in the building continuously and then being asked on somewhat short notice to kind of call a hockey game. Uh, I believe it was virtual. I believe they were remote, you know, for two teams that you don't particularly know that well in a league that you might not know that well. Um, that's a challenge. And I, I like his rhythm. I like his delivery. I think if you've ever watched the New Jersey Devils, um, you know, play-by-play highlights and listen to it, um, him and his color guy, who I love his color guy's voice because he's got the most New Jersey accent ever. Um, he calls a good hockey game. So I, I think I, I wanted to point that out because we've seen broadcasts where people haven't called a good hockey game. And I want people to kind of know that um, – that, that was a good hockey call. That was a good hockey call on Friday, Saturday. Um, I know we kind of, you know, joked around and kind of gave the production crew a hard time. We did learn this morning too, that it was mostly a student run broadcast and a, and a new producer that it was his first game. It was his first game. I uh, um, doing any NCHC action. Cause don't forget they were in the pod in Omaha. So, um, all these broadcasters, they're learning, they're growing. I know we had a little bit of fun with it, um, but really we do wish that crew in Duluth the best. And, you know, they're going to get better every day, just similar to Husky Productions will uh, as well. So I, I did kind of want to point that out as well. Um, Nick, I was going to add something else, but I can't. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, the last discussion we kind of saw, and I want to get your opinion on this, um, was talking about how um, the Herb Brooks National Hockey Center, you know, is an Olympic sheet. Amsoil Arena and most other rinks are that NHL size sheet. Uh, at some point, the chillers are going to have to be replaced in the Herbrooks National Hockey Center, which means there's going to have to be some work done in the corners. But you can't really adjust the size of the sheet too much at the Herb because of the fact that uh, the water table, uh, from what uh, uh, Chris Becker, one of our followers, had told us, um, you know, you can't change it to that NHL size sheet, and then you'd have a nightmare with seating as well. Um, you know, what is what is the ideal? Um, sheet because hockey rinks aren't you know as one fan pointed out they're not so much like baseball um, stadiums where they vary wildly but you do have some variance there for me personally I think Olympic sheets are almost the way to go just because of the fact that the game has become so clogged down with guys becoming so strong and so fast you know I think you really open up a lot of that skill game with that Olympic sheet um, what's your preference do you like the NHL sheet uh, would you like to see a hybrid between the two um, for those who I'm really rambling on here but I want to give the dimensions here for an Olympic sheet it's 200 feet long by 100 feet wide and for an NHL sheet 200 feet long by 85 feet wide so you lose 15 feet in that transfer Nick what's the solution for college and NHL hockey uh, for rink sizes what should they do well you first got to take you know a look at what college hockey is it's a developmental league and the same reason why the NCHC was a leading I guess group that wanted to push the NCAA to adopt a three and three overtime is you want to mimic the NHL game as best you can. Um, I'm with you personally on the opinion that the Olympic sheet opens up more skill. Um, but at the end of it, you need to prepare your players for the NHL. So to do that, you need an NHL sized rink, honestly, just because it's going to force you to make quicker decisions. It's going to uh, force um, your brain to think quicker. And to me, it's, it's, if there's anything that I've noticed is that when you talk about some great players uh, that have come through St. Cloud State, uh, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're playing some high-level talent at the next level and you're so used to the Olympic sheet, um, even you, you know, you talk, we talk about this in hockey all the time, even that split second, it sounds 
almost, you know, to, I think the casual fan, like it means nothing to the game of hockey. It can be the difference between the puck on your stick or the puck being taken away. Um, so I think at the end of it, if college hockey really wants to be a better developmental league, I think they need to universally adopt the NHL size rink. Um, now on a personal note, for St. Cloud, they're a training facility. So USA Hockey and training and training camps use their sheets all the time throughout the summer. Uh, there's also a reason that it is an Olympic-sized sheet. It's not just for the Huskies, but a ton of other programs, um, including USA Hockey, as I mentioned before, use it for their training for international skating. Um, so it's it's kind of a catch-22 for the St. Cloud State is because um, that rink, I mean, for the pandemic, I mean, it's the quietest that rink has been in probably 25, 30 years um, over this last few months. And so um, it's going to be hard because of, again, as our, as our follower mentioned, because of just the, I don't know if you would call it the geographics or the, the hydrodynamics or what you want to call for the water table. <laughs> um, but at the end of it, I, I think for what the, for what the herb was designed is designed to be an Olympic sheet. Um, I think they're going to have to keep that. Um, just because if you're going to shrink the size of the rink, you're talking about imploding the entire Herbert National Hockey Center, which mm -hmm. um, on a personal note, it does need quite significant upgrades. And when I say significant upgrades, it's not because I don't like what it is. It's just there are things, you know, this rink really hasn't had much in terms of, you know, I guess a remodel since its induction in the 80s. And it's definitely getting due for some replacement of some things and to, uh, I guess, some upgrades for the fan experience in 40 years. So. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. You know, it, it's interesting to me, though, to hear, you know, your opinion to want that NHL size sheet, you know, and I, and I understand and I guess I agree with where you're coming from. But I, I know my dad and I have talked about this quite extensively. And it's just like that Olympic sheet, I think, just opens up so many possibilities as well. I mean, I know we love the big hits. I know we love the physical play and that sort of thing. But I mean, let's go back to, you know, the, the Duluth game last night, you know, a one nothing uh, battle of defense essentially is what it was. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of grade A scoring opportunities until really the latter half of the third period, I think is when it kind of finally started to open up. I mean, both these teams were struggling so much for that open ice that, you know, I, I gotta be honest with you. I mean, you know, we love the game of hockey more than anything, you know, but for a game that was dead, even through basically the entire game until the game winner, that was a boring hockey game to me. I mean, it was just, really hard to watch because it was so tactically and defensively sound that, you know, that open ice wasn't there, you know, versus you think about uh, the Huskies, I believe they went, if I'm not mistaken, 0 for 4 on the power play this weekend. Uh, Duluth didn't score on the power play this weekend. Teams had seven combined power play goals, if I'm not mistaken, through the weekend, the weekend prior, you know, at the Herbert's National Hockey Center. So what does that tell you about puck possession and that, you know, and the special teams game is that's where you're starting to really open up that skill level. And I, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, because for me, I guess I just I saw a much, much more wide open game at the Herb that was, um, I guess, pretty exciting, although the four to three game on Friday night was a, was a really good game in Duluth, too. So not to say that you can't have those high scoring games. We see it in the National Hockey League all the time. But I just think that Olympic sheet opens up so many possibilities. I would love to see a hybrid sheet. I would love to see uh, something in between there, but that's just never going to happen. Uh, at least as right now, um, I don't think you can directly correlate the game plan um, necessarily as far as, especially between these two clubs who face each other four straight times, right, to the, sh the size of the ice sheet. Because um, are we really talking about the same tactical defensive if, you know, we're coming out of a split in St. Cloud and one team wins it, so it's a two-to-one. Duluth really 
knew that they were, you know, this was an important game. Um, St. Cloud State knew this was going to be an important game for Duluth on home ice. Um, this would have been what taking essentially nine of 12 points were on the line for uh, the Huskies after it was all said and done. But had they won in regulation, it would have been 10 of 12 points. Um, that is the longest stretch in terms of being on the losing side for Duluth all season. And so this was a pivotal game for both Duluth and for St. Cloud. And yeah, you can use the ice dimensions maybe in your benefit or maybe, you know, not so much, but are you really changing your tactics, whether it's a uh, 100 you know, foot East West versus 85? No, you're not. Um, no. You, 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 you really think? I mean, no, I guess, I guess I, I just, I disagree with you there just because I, like, yeah, I mean, you wasn't Duluth like the first or second team in the NCHC as far as power play was concerned coming into, I believe at least last weekend, if not this weekend. So it, part of me is like, you know, when I look at the power play, I mean, Brett Larson said in our interview, I guess I'm just thinking, I mean, sh I guess you're saying the strategy doesn't change. And I guess I would agree with yeah. you there, but I think what you can do, you know, you think about an overload, right. Or when you run a scissor play coming down from the bottom, you know, you know, if you're running an overload in those two players, the player on the half wall and the player down below the goal line, they scissor and cross there. I mean, you got 10 feet of open ice that you can run that play versus in Duluth. You can't. So, I mean, I guess um, I'm just trying to clarify what you're trying to say, because I'm trying to figure out if I agree yeah. with you or not. No, so, so right. The strategy doesn't change, but the funny thing is in hockey, we talk about what area of the ice do we always want? It's the middle of the ice. We're not saying take, take the puck wide. Um, per se. Now you do, you know, especially in a zone entry, like you're mentioning, because you're trying to stretch out the defenseman and maybe that's where tactically, like you mentioned, the scissor change that that really does, excuse me, take precedence. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, I want the NCAA to be a developmental league for the national hockey league. And my, I guess my concern with having that extra sheet of ice is you become used to that being successful. You used, you're used to having that extra you know, um, the extra room. And then you shrink that 15 feet down. And as you, we talked about, it, even a foot in hockey is a, is a big deal. So, um, so, so does, so does the NHL, should the NHL adopt an Olympic sheet? I guess maybe that's no. the better question. You don't think so? No, I don't. And, really? And, and, here, and here's why it, it adds because you, you have the best players in the world on this sheet. Um, every inch of ice is contested. Now, what I love about the NHL is the fact that I, I think the rink dimensions help with the parity of the league. You have it, the league has changed essentially since they got rid of the two line pass. For those who don't remember, that was the dumbest rule in hockey. Yeah. Um, it, it just was awful. Um, they've also done a kind of a number on terms of like having the department of player safety and really looking back at, you know, hits that maybe were seen by those folks at home, but were by the refs and they were going on call. So, you know, you could say the ruckus and the physicality of the game has gone down way a lot since, you know, I would say the last lockout in 2015, I should say the full season lockout. The last lockout was in 2012. Uh, but I, I like the dimensions where they're at because it forces you to make decisions quick. It forces you to maintain puck possession. It forces you to also where if, you know, these big, strong, fast human beings are going to stand up at the blue line, you're going to have to play a chip and chase game, which means you're going to engage in a physical battle. Um, I don't want both these teams to go east and, you know, go coast to coast and, you know, kind of scissor in between. To me that, you know, there's some excitement to that, but I don't want, Mario will so, need to be cloned 10 times to go so, up and down the ice. So I guess I, I want to ask about this. And this is um, this is partly my own opinion, part, partly me trying to play devil's advocate because I know you're sleepy and groggy. So I think I have you this morning, um, but uh, or this afternoon, I should say. Um, but, you know, I, I think we see that a lot of that at the NHL level where you have, you know, that floated off the glass and just kind of regroup and, you know, kind of recalibrate, if you will. Um, I want to go back to a specific game. Uh, 
and a game, I, I believe it was on, on an Olympic sheet. So correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, Team North America versus Team Sweden a couple of years ago in the World Cup of Hockey. Was that on an Olympic sheet or an NHL sheet? That was sheet? in Toronto. Yeah, NHL sheet. Okay, so I'm thinking, you know, with a game like that, imagine how much that game opens up even more on an Olympic sheet. I mean, you have guys who are already skilled. I guess like, you know, for me, it's like, I think you have some really exciting NHL games, but think about like, let's pick the Minnesota wild and watching their games, the Minnesota wild, you know, puck off the glass, puck off the glass, puck off the glass, you know, to, to, you know, alleviate pressure and part of well, me when is you have just, no center when you have no center help down yeah, well, <laughs> well yeah true but it, it, i guess part of me is just kind of like you just you don't you know you don't teach that you know that high-flying style of offense and, and maybe you're right maybe it is this really good balance where you have enough high-flying skill but enough of that physicality and that old school mentality to keep the old geezers happy you know that grew up with the clutch and grab of uh the the 70s and 80s but uh, you know i I don't know. I like for me, I guess I just think, you know, and I guess what happens if it goes to an Olympic sheet, do we hit a point where that physicality players don't know how to hit anymore? I don't know. Maybe you are right where we need to stay there too. I just, I don't know what the answer is. And one fan pointed out very humorously, but almost with a little bit of truth, it seems like whatever rink you don't have, whatever size you don't have, that's the one you want, depending on the team you have that year. Yeah. And it's, it's, it becomes to, I think the debate, if you really analyze it, no, it comes down to how much offense is too much offense in the national hockey league. Um, you know, we, we've seen games, um, I think lopsided games or, you know, football scores, right. Nine to one or 10 to two. I don't think hockey is ready for that just yet. Honestly. Um, I like the four, three games. Now, do we love the one, nothing overtime games? It depends on how it's played. Right now, in a contested ice sheet where both teams such as the Duluth uh, Bulldogs and the Huskies for St. Cloud are just sticking to the structure. And again, you know, it's a boring game because again, tactically they're sound, right? It's in, in the NHL, that's, you're going to get the same type of affair, but it's faster, it's bigger, it's stronger. And, you know, there's more aggression to try to break the other one's structure down versus I guess trying to play the more weighted out and see who breaks first kind of deal, which I think is where college hockey is right now. Um, at the end of it, uh, you know, you, you, it's a balancing act, as you mentioned. And, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing a six, five game, but I don't know if expanding the ice sheet is the issue. Plus you also have to understand too, in the national hockey league level, you're sharing facilities, half of them with the NBA. So at the end of it, the uh, arenas themselves, are they capable of even fitting an NHL size rink inside those buildings? I don't think half of them are. I really don't think they have that room. So the X, uh, the XL definitely can't because you're trying to build your fans as close as you can. That's ticket sales. That's everything else. So, I mean, if you were to make that call, you're talking to every single owner of the national hockey league, including Seattle's building, mind you, which is just getting remodeled. Mm -hmm. um, having to change everything. I just don't think that, especially on the NHL can, you know, I guess, uh, afford that cost. Now, in hockey in the next 20 years, if things continue to change, is that maybe a conversation we revisit? Maybe. Um, just because, I, I don't know, because there's been, a, there's been a debate too about the, you know, you know, how about the players from Sweden and Finland and from the European style coming over, which use Olympic sheets? Do they are in how well did they adjust to the game? Well, I think 
there's plenty of names out there that says, yeah, they can. They're doing just fine. The, the smaller ice to me is okay. I don't think the NHL needs to go the opposite way where they're, tr- you know, they're, they're trying to pursue the international game. I don't think that's necessary. Uh, the NHL sets the standard. Um, you have to, you know, take what's given and you got to make the best of what your dimensions are. Um, and again, the speed and the skill game in the NHL right now is really, really good, but you have to also be able to say, Hey, defensively, you know, you can either choose to take that ice. You can use, you can give it if you want. And at the end of it, you know, the defensemen that we're seeing now in the NHL too also have a pretty good out, you know, they're skating, they can skate, they can defend, they can hang with these guys. And so to me, it's still a much of a speed game, but tactically is where you're going to see the differences. And that to me, the ice sheet to me is irrelevant in that conversation. Yeah. Just don't come at me. Anybody saying you need to change the size of the hockey nets. Once we start that discussion, I, I no have way. no, I have no time for you. Not a chance that just changes the integrity of the game. Anyway, uh, speaking of international play though, Nick, our last topic of the day, we do have to jump into. And uh, one, I suppose you and I are pretty excited about when we talked to Abby Thiessen, uh, who will join us on Tuesday. She wasn't so thrilled as a red deer, Alberta native. And that is the world junior tournament, the United States, winning gold uh, by a score of two to nothing over uh, a Canadian team that was the heavy favorite in that championship game uh, before eking out a win uh, the day before the U.S. did in the final 90 seconds of regulation to punch their ticket to the gold medal game. Uh, Brett Larson was an assistant coach on that squad last year, so he kind of knows a lot of those guys and was, I'm sure, really happy to see them continue to grow and have that success, as he had mentioned in our interview last week, how having a team that brings back a lot of players that's a year older and a year stronger uh, is is really, really pivotal. Nick, I mean, what did, what did you kind of pull away from uh, the United States uh, two to nothing win? the United States fun fact, the last four times they have met Canada in the gold medal game in the world junior tournament, they have won all four games. You got to love it. I believe it was uh, this year, 2017, 2010 and 2004, if I'm not mistaken, that's just running off the top of my head. So don't tell me I sound right because then you're just lying to the listeners. You never think I'm right. So um, really, um, what is right though is the U.S. team just seemed to get better and better every game in this tournament. So, what did you like from the U.S.? How did the, how did their role, their road to the gold medal game? How did it culminate? Did you expect this U.S. team to win a gold medal out of the gate, or you know what surprised you? What didn't? I don't think it was any surprise that the two favorites to meet for the gold medal game were the U.S. and Canada. Um, it's kind of been trending that way lately. And of course, the uh, the you know, the Finns and the, uh, the Swedish teams are always right up there in the mix as well. Russia, to me, if there's any surprise that Russia didn't look that good at all. No. Um, usually they're a team that, you know, they're usually are carried by goaltending. Usually they're a team that can score. They're not a team that's known for defensive hockey. That's for sure. But they're a team that almost beat you by just outscoring you. Um, and Russia just did not seem to have anything really put together. They looked like a team that was very discombobulated, but yeah, for team Russia, they really just couldn't do anything. Um, at the end of the day, they're a team that has to outscore you to win. Um, and, you know, going back to the U S and Canada, uh, Dave, Starman, a good friend of the podcast, uh, who was on the uh, analyst role uh, for the NHL network, said it briefly is that the United States was the only team that could execute the game plan that they did to beat Canada. Um, the four gaps, and he talked about this a lot. The U.S. were basically a five-man unit in all three areas of the ice, um, especially to the neutral zone. They did not give Canada any room uh, to stretch the play, to use their speed. Defensively, they were clocking the middle, getting in shot lanes. They were blocking shots. Um, at the end of it, Canada was a team, and you could see it really start in, i say, the mid before the game, 10-minute uh, mark in the second period. They were getting frustrated. Uh, there was not as much open ice as they could. They couldn't break down the U.S. structure, um, and they were ended up, 
trying to force pucks. They were trying to stretch the ice a little bit too much um, instead of really coming up the ice as a unit. Uh, and again, credit to the U.S. There was just not any room for them to come in, uh, especially carrying the puck in the offensive zone. And um, you got to credit also to um, the U.S. defense where when Canada finally learned, I, you know, we're going to have to ship this puck in and get it. Uh, the defensemen who are very mobile, Cam York, one of them. Um, and, you know, we got Jacob uh, – Sanderson, Sanderson, also yeah. a, a UND uh, a freshman, I should say, one of the uh, – was he fourth overall again? Fifth. Uh, fifth overall, again, in this draft. Uh, these defensemen are incredibly uh, well on their feet, and so they were able to go retrieve it, go move the puck up the ice, and I think just having good breakouts, too, for the U.S. Uh, were really key. Uh, two kind of quirky goals for the U.S. in this game, but at the end of the day, you know, they don't ask you how, they ask how many. And so for the U.S. and for – I mean, I don't know if any of the gold medal games they've ever shut out Canada, especially for a team that I think, if I remember correctly, outscored their opponent before this game 41-4. to And there was talks in, in Canada, uh, both on uh, Sportsman and TSN, that you know are, they were comparing this hockey team in terms of their dominance to the 2005 squad uh, in, term, in terms of just how well they were dominant. And um, to go in to be shut out on home ice, essentially, in Edmonton uh, slash Red Deer, and have the, the U.S. come in and, and basically take you know, their flag and stomp it into the ice at, um, in Canada was uh, is going to be kind of a reality check for the Canadian um, Canadian uh, World Junior Club. Um, but more so, credit to the U.S. I mean, that game plan was executed beautifully. They were speedful. They were very, very good with you know puck possession. They did not feed into Canada's game plan at all. They were patient. Um, they got good shots in on that. Um, and they were creating a lot of havoc, too, in front of the uh, in front of their net, too. Um, and Spencer Wright, too, with a couple of times that Canada did give uh, some great chances. Uh, he was there to, uh, to make the save. So great game by the U.S. Um, to me, I will say this, the third period was a little bit scary. I think U.S. was defending a little bit too much. And uh, to me, if Canada had potted one, no one, I think you'll agree with me on this, we could be talking about a loss for the U.S. in terms of Canada. To me, Canada was one of those teams where it reminded me so much of the Huskies versus AIC game a couple of years ago where you just needed one to go and just to feel some sort of confidence or some, you were seeing something good happen. And I think Canada would have had a really nice energy boost had they got one in past Spencer to make a 2-1 and what the pressure they were putting on. Again, U.S. was defending very, very well, but – uh, you could see possibly how the uh, uh, the train would roll down uncontrollably down the hill per se. So um, overall, great, great tournament. I know a lot of people are are kind of crapping on maybe Team Austria, Team Switzerland for uh, not being at that level, but you don't get better in an international tournament unless you play good, good teams. You just don't. Um, again, Switzerland, um, you know, they've uh, generated some good um, hockey players over the years, they just don't have the depth. Again, Austria, Marco Rossi was their only first-round pick since Thomas Vanek. So they're uh, a country that maybe hockey isn't quite their number one thing. But again, you, in order to know where you got to go, you got to play good competition. So overall, it's my favorite hockey tournament of the year. Great for the U.S. to take home the gold. It was a good gold medal game between them and, the, and Canada. It was a, a must-watch for me. I'm sure it was a must-watch for you, Noah. And uh, overall, to me, it was a great tournament. I think it was the first game in five uh, medal games between the U S and Canada, where there hasn't been a lead change or two goals scored within the last like five minutes of the game or something like that. We've, we've seen some pretty crazy lead changes and lead swings, if you will. Um, 
in those games. Number one that you had kind of pointed out for me. Um, yeah. The third period for the United States or for Canada. Um, yeah. If Canada comes out like that for the full 60 minutes, it's not even a contest. I mean, that Canadian team was a very, very good team. You mentioned the 2005 group that was actually in grand Forks for the world junior tournament. I was at those games. That was a good hockey team. And I was like eight or nine years old. So if you can notice it, then you're definitely going to notice it now. Um, you talked about the U S uh, um, and kind of, you mentioned kind of fluky goals and uh, yeah, they were, um, although the one was a really nice redirect, but one of the things I liked about the U S attack, I thought the first period was kind of a momentum swing back and forth where another team really had a real stranglehold until maybe the U S in the last couple of minutes of the first period. Um, U S definitely had the second period for the majority of the period, except for probably the tail end of that third period, all Canada. Um, but you look at both of the two U S goals, um, and the play actually, um, the first shift was like a 55 second shift that ends up in the back of the net, uh, running a simple cycle, but both of these goals actually, even though they ended up on forward sticks for, you know, the goal actually started with the United States defensemen and their willingness to move plays from low to high. And what I mean by that is this, uh, really good hockey teams. Uh, take for example, the Tampa Bay lightning who just won a Stanley cup last year. They're a group that's not afraid to move pucks east west with their defensemen and their forwards. Sometimes it almost looks like a power play to them where you're seeing, you know, a play go from down low to up high to across to, to across the U S um, I think their defensemen just had a willingness to know situational play. I think they just knew when was the right time to force that pass versus when was the right time to just dump a puck in. And you think about the United States, they were not a team with their skill and speed that was going to overwhelm Canada with their skill. Canada was the better skill team. There is no doubt about that. So the U.S. realized that to generate offense, they were going to have to keep pucks along the wall. They were going to have to keep puck possession and try to get a group hemmed in their own zone and just continue to cycle the puck down low, cycle the puck down low, throw a puck on net, throw a puck down in the corner. That's what the U.S. did. And you continue to, to you know wear and tear and grind down this Canada team, you look at the first goal, you know, a cycle that runs for 55 seconds shot on net from a defenseman gets redirected. Really nice play. That's the culmination of pinning a Canadian team in their own zone and then getting a line change in there as well. Second goal at the start of a period, same typical play where you establish that forecheck goes up to the point and it just gets thrown down low. gets a really fortuitous bounce off the back of the net. Good things happen when you're around the net. U S player capitalizes for that two to nothing lead. I think the U S it was about as textbook of a game as you could have had against that Canadian team. Like you mentioned, because this Canadian team, as Dave Starman had alluded to on, on the broadcast really hadn't been tested really hadn't been tested. So, you know, they were kind of on their heels and the U S credit to them came out a little bit like a buzzsaw, especially in that second period and didn't sit back and took charge. Here's the biggest takeaway from me that absolutely irritates me as an American hockey fan. And I forget the guy's name, but we were watching obviously the NHL network broadcast. Mike Rupp was on the right side. I forget who was in the middle. Do you remember the name of the guy who was on the left by chance? I, if that's yeah, it's because I don't I don't know his name. He's a he's Either a Canadian or Tony Luffman. He's a, he's a Canadian boy. Wears glasses. He's a Canadian boy. That's EJ Raddick. Yeah, and he's one of these diehard old school Canadian announcers. And I gotta tell you, man, the U.S. comes out and plays arguably their best period in the tournament. In the second period, is all over Team Canada. And they go into that intermission break. And you know what this guy says? He's talking about how Spencer Knight is keeping him in this hockey game. Spencer Knight didn't keep the U.S. in that hockey game until the third period. Spencer Knight played very, very well. U.S. didn't need Spencer Knight until the third period. I'm sorry. 
U.S. was the more dominant team through the first 40 minutes. And I, I got to tell you, as an American, I, you know, I'm not chat because I'm an American. I'm chat because there are still, even today, after all these performances in the World Juniors and the grudge matches, not even in the medal round, but just in general, the U.S. and Canada have had, where these Canadian, old school Canadian boys still think that Canada is this perennial dominant powerhouse in the world of international hockey. Canada's a very good team. Canada always feels a very good team. U.S. is catching up. U.S. is a very good hockey team. Finland's very good. Sweden's very good. Russia, depending on the year, is very good. We've seen a couple of German teams that have been very strong. You know, I just don't understand why during that broadcast, he could not give the United States credit for being arguably the better team through the first 40 minutes. I don't know what it is with that mentality. I don't know if Canada's just, you know, it's their game. They don't want to let it go. That's I, it. That's I, literally what it is. It just, it pissed me off something fierce, Nick, because here's the deal. If North Dakota, who we hate, we don't hate them, but you know what I mean? It, big rivalry, right? We despise them. If Yeah. If North Dakota comes in, right and walks all over the Huskies for the first two periods of a hockey game, you and I are not going to sit on a broadcast and say, oh, well, you know, Adam Shield really keeping keeping North Dakota in this game. You know, it would be all Huskies if it wasn't for that. How in the world can St. Cloud State be down in this group? It just doesn't, like, was he not watching the same game we were watching? You know, it was just, for me, if you think about American fans and the world juniors, because the games don't get really aired in the U S besides NHL network, which is bogus in its own right, but we'll get to that another day. Um, when you have your largest amount of American and international watchers during that game, probably for the whole tournament, you know, for the American team and people who maybe don't know the game that well, how, how do you sit there and not be objective about this hockey game? It's just for me, I was, I just get so irritated when people are not objective about the game. And I know you, I know you're looking at me like, okay, you just need to calm down a little bit. But for me, I'm just like, tell the listeners what is happening. If North Dakota is up five, nothing on the Huskies, I'm not going to say the only reason is because I had him shield. I'm going to say we're getting our asses kicked <laughs> by North Dakota. That's just what's happening. You know, it, there's a, we forget that in Canada, there's such a, there's a big semblance of pride that comes with the game. Um, it's, you know, compared to here in the U S it's football, right? There's just, it's something that on Sundays you do, you sit back, you grab your favorite uh, beverage, you grab some snacks, you grab some family, your friends, and you're watching football for Canada. It's hockey night in Canada on Saturdays. It used to be, you know, and again, that, that is their sport. So to them, it's more than just a tournament. It's more than just that. It is a, a semblance of Canadian pride. It's because that is their game. Um, so to me, it, it's, it's not facetious, I don't think. I just think that it means so much more to that country than it does to us. And so, yeah, do they get away from maybe the objectivity of the argument? But at the end of it, it's kind of that pridefulness which drives this rivalry also. It's because the U.S. is still – if you want to call it, yeah, I would still say that Canada is the better perennial mm -hmm. hockey organization. Hockey Canada had to me still is. Um, I know plenty of people in hockey Canada, great people, prideful people. 
and they have one goal every single term, and that is we want to take home gold. And, and essentially, the expectation is also, Noah, to win gold, and if anything less than that is essentially seen as a failure at, at the end of it. Which, now, which, which, to point out very quickly, this group was one heck of a Canadian group, and they should was. be very cherished by this group. And number two, um, the barrel thing was not meant as a disrespect to Canada. If you ever get a chance to take a look at that, I hope you touch on that a little bit because that's the only thing I miss talking about. But, um, yeah, this Canadian group, very good hockey very team good. and arguably could have won probably any other nine out of 10 games that night. And that at the end of it, when you throw the Americans in there and hockey Canada knows the American national team development program is a program that is now meant to be reckoned with. Meaning I think if you rewind the clocks 10 years, even 10 years ago, they're a team that's getting better, but it's like, uh, they're kind of like still, maybe a Russia team or a Finnish team where they're going to have like the rise and then they're going to fall back down again. The U S program is now we have the gold medals to prove it. They're a team that's not consistently on the same level as Canada is. And so you're starting to get this rivalry where between, you know, these two countries, you know, it's almost expected and anticipated that these two are going to meet in the, in the gold medal game for these world juniors. I think what even sparks this debate even further is let's go back to the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver, mm -hmm. the overtime winner by Sidney Crosby. That was probably in terms of a full 60 minute hockey game. Um, and then going into overtime, one of the best hockey Unreal. games I've ever seen in my life. Um, that rivalry between the U.S. and Canada, that just took it to another level. It starts at the World Juniors and it continues to be that international play, but it's feeding off of that gained a 3-2 win for Canada. Again, inside at that time, it was GM place, I still believe, in 2010. If not, it's um, up there in, in Vancouver. Yeah, Rogers, Rogers, Rogers Center Rogers, now. Rogers yeah. Center, thank you. It was GM place for a while. Um, but uh, at the end of it, this is great for the game of hockey. And I think you, you alluded to it perfectly, and that is why in the hell, pardon my French, is any U.S. major broadcast network mm. not allowing this to be aired on channel five, channel four, or something like that. Something where people can watch this. NBC. Yeah. NBC. Um, somebody to me, if the NHL, if NHL is smart and I, because again, they own NHL network. They're also run cooperatively with the MLB media. So that's one thing that people should know. But if you're trying to grow the game and you're trying to expose people to some really good youth, um, first of all, we can't even see college hockey unless you're in your Minnesota and you have Fox nine and Fox nine plus, which is great. Right. But why can't NBC as part of their deal say, Hey, world junior, that's a big freaking deal. We want the world junior tournament to be on channel 11. So people can watch it and give somebody an alternative, at least the metal round, you know, at if least anything. the metal round. Yeah. yeah. At least the metal round. Um, at the end of it, that's the only way you're going to grow this game. Um, and so, and to me, it's, it's sad to say that. We're in this debate between these two, these, two, uh, these two clubs, but at the end of it, it's a debate because they're two very, very good programs, and they've gotten to a point now where it's become almost that Minnesota-North Dakota rivalry almost kind of you know feel to it. And to me, it's much, it's much watch hockey. It is. It is. I, I just think at the end of it, you need to promote the sport this way um, and for people to watch and to really understand how well this U.S. national team development program has come along in even 10 years. Um, you need to reward that by giving them some freaking airtime. Seriously, uh, that was one fun hockey game to watch uh, the last couple of weeks. And at the end of it, 
watch the U.S. get gold and let's give him some freaking praise for once in the freaking role. I mean, and, seriously. And, and that's what I'm asking to kind of wrap up this point here is, you know, is whatever his name is. See, I don't even know his name because I'm so irritated. Um, is he doing a disservice for people watching the game, you know, who who aren't diehard Canadian or American fans, you know, by not being objective about it. And I, and I know we kind of shrug it off and it's a lot easier to shrug it off when the U S wins, but it's kind of like, you know, I, I guess for me, it was just kind of like, you know, our goal in the game is always to get, paint the fans a picture of what's going on. We, we talked a little bit earlier about the women's hockey team, right? How the women's hockey team struggled against the Gophers. Sure. We want to point, we want to try to stay positive if we can, but like the women's hockey team played poorly against the Gophers on Saturday, had a very, very poor start. We're not going to sugarcoat that for you because that's what happened. You know? So for me, I guess it's just kind of like, I, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's just our mentality that I feel like we need to provide the full scope and the full picture for people. I guess I, I just want to, you know, the only does... thing I will say, Noah is does Paul Allen always, you know, crap on the Vikings, even though they really know. Um, <laughs> I think <laughs> at the end of it and grind you, I love Paul and I calls a great game, but you know, there's that, there's still, again, the Canadian pride factor is always going to be there with these people. Sure. Um, and at the end of it, you know, it actually probably could have turned a little bit funny if somebody as like the other analyst, because there was two analysts in the room there, um, mm -hmm. maybe who was an American person, um, decided to call them out a little bit and have a little bit more fun with it. Then I don't think we're having this conversation, you know, so you can yeah. have a little bit of homer. I have no issue with that, but you know, don't be afraid to stand up and be like, Hey man, no, yeah. this is not, this is not the Spencer Knight show. Um, he, yeah, he had to make some, okay saves in the second period but it wasn't like he was being bombarded it's not like canada was generating you know grady scoring chance after grady scoring chance um there was maybe two if not three of those in the entire period and yes when your goaltender needs to come up and make a save that's when they needed him he did but it wasn't like you know the u.s was you know had defensive breakdowns or canada was really moving the puck into really good areas no they were preventing them so there was spencer Knight, but also the five guys in front of them that were making life a living hell for team canada to try to get those really good scoring opportunities so to me yeah i mean whatever it's a moot point to me i don't he, he can say what he wants because guess what around the neck here in the u.s we have that thing that's hanging and it's made of gold so i don't care yeah. um i believe mike rupp is an american too although he was wearing as my dad would put it a clown suit he did understand how the pants match the suit he thought that was kind of funny um i would say actually probably the best move in that game actually came from the canadians though i believe it was in the second period that move that that three on one that developed i think the u.s was on a power play bowen byram shorthanded hits yep. the post on that you know that quick transition there. that was a pretty pretty play so um that was probably my favorite play of the entire tournament even though it didn't actually really amount to anything but nonetheless um, really happy the United States got gold. And like you mentioned, that's exactly what matters. Uh, speaking of things that are going to be absolutely golden starting this upcoming week, we do have Abby Thiessen and Hallie Theodosopoulos joining us this Tuesday for our Healthy Scratch interview segment. So be sure to check that one out. We had a lots, of, lots of laughs and a lot of fun with that one. And then as we mentioned, we will be recording with Brett Hedekin this week, hopefully. So we should have that one a week from Tuesday in our next Healthy Scratch interview segment for episode number 45. But episode number 45 on Sunday starts off with a bang with our new co-host, really excited for him to join us, uh, former CBS Play-by-Play -play announcer for 11 years in Ben Holden. Uh, really, really excited uh, for everything that's coming on for the Huskies Warming House podcast. Nick, anything to add before we bid our listeners adieu? I'll make sure next week to set two alarms. <laughs> no worries we'll have this content up uh, real soon hopefully on this sunday and we wish you a wonderful sunday and a wonderful week from the huskies warming house podcast and hope to see you back in the den soon mm -hmm.